Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Our guest today is Matt Metris. This is Matt's second time on the podcast. Matt is an enrolled agent at MDM Financial Services, a boutique tax firm located in Rochester, New York, which specializes in cryptocurrency taxation and accounting. Matt, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me back, Sal. It's been uh, hasn't been that long in the in the normal timeline, but uh, a lot of stuff's <laughs> happened. Yeah, it feels like years. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's only, I think we to- spoke in January last, right? So it's yeah. only been three months, really. But a lot has changed since then. Yeah, it is a brand new world, and uh, it's early April, and we are hopefully nearing the peak of the COVID nineteen crisis. I'm in New York State. I think you're in New York State too, right? Right. Yep. So we are uh, the epicenter, pretty much. Well, New York City yeah. is, but yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm about six hours outside of New York City, but we definitely have cases here as well. But it's it's a very interesting time to live and work, I guess. Yeah, well, location-wise, you're actually the guest that we've had on the podcast that lives actually closest in proximity to me. We both live fairly close. I've interviewed people that were in different countries and obviously different states, so you're definitely the closest guest geolocation-wise to me. Yeah, there we go. New York, represent New York. That's uh, right. That's right. All right. So for anybody who you know hasn't listened to the last episode or who is unfamiliar with you, can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself before we go on to the questions? Yeah, so totally. I'm an enrolled agent and I've been uh, in tax practice for about 17 years. And I've been focusing primarily on the cryptocurrency space since early 2017, really 2014, but it really took off in 2017. But I have a full service tax business firm. So I have clients outside of the crypto space as well, small businesses and individuals on top of that. Okay, so we're in a unique situation. Coronavirus is going on. It's certainly unique in a sense that it's affecting everybody globally. There's not one really group or one location that's not affected. Everybody's affected equally or everybody's affected. So everybody's going through this at the same time. So my question to you, my first question is, how has this affected your role as an enrolled agent? Yeah, it's, uh, there's been a couple interesting things. So we, we have the, the tax season has been elongated. You know, I already work from home. So that was that hasn't changed. But now my entire family's here with me, which makes it a little different. Uh, you know, I'm used to having a good seven hour block during the day where I can focus on work and have it be quiet and, and be able to do, you know, that kind of stuff. And even working from home, it's hard to really spend a lot of time focusing on the work because this situation and the rest of the world is changing you know, on a minute by minute basis. So I constantly have the TV on watching the news or whatever, which is probably not the healthiest thing. But yeah, uh, you know, I try to keep up on that too. Yeah, Um, I'll I'll say I I always used to have the news on in the background when I was working, I always just had it on in the background. I I loved keeping, you know, abreast of current events. But now it's like you can't have it on 24 seven, because it's just going to drive you crazy. Unfortunately, you know, that's how I see it anyway. And that's somebody who loves watching the news. Yeah, it really does. So I try to limit myself to, um, you know, the governor does a daily press conference, uh, which has yep. some good updates. So I try to watch that when I can and uh, try to just get the highlights, <laughs> you know, yeah. at the beginning and the end of the day and not have it on constantly because it's, you know, a lot of changing stuff. And I'm also um, a school board member and there's a lot of stuff happening in the in the education space on an hourly by hourly basis, too. So uh, there's a lot to keep up on besides just work and family. Uh, even right. though I never never leave the house except to go to the grocery store. Yeah. And a couple points on, on things that you mentioned. So first off, you mentioned the tax deadline extension. I feel like most people who are listening probably know that that did occur, but maybe not. So can you kind of elaborate on the tax deadline extension? Yes, absolutely. So the IRS deadline for any returns or payments that were due April 15th have been extended to July 15th. So that covers most individual filings. Business filings that were due March 15th were not extended. So those are technically late if you haven't done them yet. And then payments, which would include the payment if you have a payment due with your return or the first quarter estimated payment, those are all due July 15th. And the other thing that's important is that the IRS extended their deadline and not every state necessarily complied with the same date. So there are 39 states that moved to the 715 deadline. But there are a handful that have different deadlines, including Iowa, Hawaii, Idaho, Mississippi, Virginia, Puerto Rico, New Hampshire, and Washington. If you live in one of those states, make sure you look up the correct 
filing date uh, for you as well. Some are before the 715 and some like uh, Hawaii and Idaho are after 715. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion out there as to when stuff is actually due. I have a uh, this PDF that has like 400 pages of state changes of due dates and and you know everything for different types of returns and payments and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of information out there to try and keep up on in a quick period of time. Yeah. In New York, is that just a following federal in terms of extension? Yeah, it turned out that New York by law has to follow the federal deadline. And that was kind of confusing because it, like the governor had mentioned it in one of his press conferences that we were extending. Uh, but it took probably another two weeks for New York to put something out that officially said that the deadline was moving to July. So that happened fairly recently. But yeah, so now we're in, in much better shape. Hmm, interesting. So both you and I work remotely. As you mentioned, you work remotely. I also work fully remotely. The remote industry is booming right now, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Zoom is a, is a household name now. It was not necessarily a, a month ago. And everybody, you know, my mom's learning how to Zoom and everybody's uh, getting on, on the Zoom happy hours. I've seen a lot of those. It's interesting that yeah. Zoom has kind of taken over as the primary contender. Like you said, you know, we've been familiar with Zoom. Obviously, we use Zoom for the podcast, to record the podcast. So, you know, I've been familiar with it. Obviously, you're familiar with it. But like you said, it's a household name. My nephew's birthday is coming up and my sister sent everybody in the family a message saying, hey, we're doing like a Zoom birthday party. And it's eerie to see, you know, like, people who have never used this technology just using it so nonchalantly. It's interesting that Zoom has taken over as the main use. Yeah, and there's been some interesting news stories about whether or not they were ready to be in the limelight like this in regards to privacy and security and Zoom bombing is a, is a term that's already being used, which is like photo bombing, but on Zoom. Hmm. Where, so that's uh, people just going in the meetings, I'd assume? Yeah, people are just joining, you know, if you put your your meeting ID in a public forum like Facebook or something and anybody can see it, anybody can join your meeting if you don't have a lobby feature or a password or anything like that turned on. And so that's been a problem for a lot of places. I saw, um, I don't remember where it was, but a school district had to send out an apology because some random person came on to a classroom meeting and started saying really uh, unpleasant words and hmm. things that were not appropriate for kids. Right. And it's really encouraged. I know in my school district, all of our Zoom meetings are password protected now. So that's a, a good step in the right direction. Yeah. And I, I noticed that must put the lobby feature as the default now because it was never a default whenever I used Zoom in the past. And now whenever a guest joins the Zoom meeting, it defaults to ha adding them to the lobby. I'm sure you can change it, but it looks like the default now is to um, create a lobby. Yeah, that's a good move. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, what this virus has done, aside from being a complete awful and pain in the ass for everybody, of course, but it's really shown the true colors of a lot of different companies, right? So for example, you had mentioned Zoom, it put a spotlight on Zoom. And we saw some privacy concerns with Facebook, also some companies, some big companies like Amazon, who you would think would have the infrastructure to be prepared for these kind of things, or not necessarily these kind of things, but to, for a multi-billion dollar company to have some sort of infrastructure in place to handle, you know, unique situations. Amazon's had some, some failings, for sure, in my opinion, at least. Absolutely. I'm still waiting for my toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it was funny because when, when we get, I know this is like ridiculously personal, but we get our toilet paper on subscribe and save. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just comes like every other month in a big box. And so when this started, it was like, oh, I don't need to worry about, you know, running out to the store to get the toilet paper because we get the big box. And then we got an email when it was coming, like, yep, your toilet paper is not coming, dude. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might never see it. Yeah. But in all seriousness, yeah, there's a lot of concern about the people who are doing these deliveries, the uptick in that. You know, the Instacart workers went on strike over their safety. And, you know, there's a lot of shift in what is considered an essential worker, you know, and it doesn't necessarily tie into, you know, accountants or podcasters or stuff like us, you know, people like us, we're hardly essential in, in this world. But the people who are, are still working at the grocery stores and bringing us the stuff we need to survive are the real heroes in all this. I agree 100%. I mean, obviously, I know that sentiment's kind of going around. I personally haven't had a real chance to express it publicly, but I definitely do appreciate all of the people, you know, like delivery workers and grocery store workers. I certainly appreciate them. So anybody listening that does that job, definitely 
Not that that means too much, but much appreciation for me because those are certainly essential services. And like you said, it's flipped everything. I mean, I don't know what I would do without deliveries, right? Because we're not supposed to go to the grocery store, you know, or we're supposed to limit our trips to the grocery store. So having things delivered to us is huge, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's been such a crazy world for business, especially small business. I work with a lot of small businesses, a bunch in the uh, like bar and restaurant space. And it's been a really tough time for businesses like that. Trying to decide here in New York, you can stay open for takeout, but it's not you know quite the same as having a full staff on and, and running your restaurant. So it almost as a person, you have to decide like, do I want to be able to help that small business out and order takeout? Or should I stay in my house where they're saying I'm supposed to stay all the time? And it's kind of a tough call on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. And guidelines seem to always be changing, too. I mean, I'm not really one to disparage the federal government. I know that's kind of a common occurrence in the crypto space. But, you know, I generally try not to disparage anybody doing a job that I'm not personally doing because I don't know how the ins and outs. But the federal government certainly has some responsibility in the guidance that we're receiving during all this has changed so rapidly from not really a big deal at first to don't wear a mask to wear a mask. And now, you know, they're saying takeout food's completely fine. But, you know, a lot of people are failing to say, you know, hey, you really need to disinfect anything that you get from a takeout place, not food wise, but, you know, container wise. There's a lot of stuff that you really need to do your own research on to get definitive answers. And even then, it's still hard to get, you know, definitive answers. Yeah. And there's such inconsistency coming out of every source, basically Mm -hmm. federal, state, local, that it's, it's hard to know what you're supposed to do. (laughs) And like the mask thing in particular, you know, there was uh, about a week before the CDC had changed their guidance on masks, somebody had leaked tweet saying that new guidance is coming out from the CDC and the CDC on Twitter flat out denied that new guidance was coming. And then the new guidance came and it's like, well, now, you know, the credibility is questioned about what you're going to tell people on a regular basis. And maybe they're trying to prevent a run on masks or something. You know, we don't know what right. the motivation was, but that credibility takes a hit every time the story changes like that. So it's tough. Right. And, you know, I don't want to stray too far from crypto. Obviously, this is this is relevant as to what's going on. But I will say, I heard yesterday somebody mentioned that now is maybe not the time to you know, investigate what's going on, these responses to the coronavirus, you know, as corny as it is, let's try and come together now during all of this. And then afterwards, we can do a postmortem on what kind of occurred and who did what wrong. I kind of agree with that. It's difficult to not get pissed about certain things when you're looking at certain responses, especially when it's endangering people. But I think the best thing to do right now is try to come together as much as possible. And then later, then we can cast, you know, the blame where it needs to be cast, wherever that is. And I'm sure it is in multiple places. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, because any large organization, any federal government, anything, you can't predict these things, but you should have, you know, preparation. They're not, they're not me and you. We're like me and you don't need to have preparation for this kind of thing. We expect certain places to have things in place to account for these uh, types of situations. Certainly moving forward, hopefully that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, there's so many different moving pieces in in all the governmental levels, which I'm sure makes it that much more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So let's shift the focus back to crypto and how it's been affected by everything that has been going on. I mean, the stocks, you know, typical stocks took a dive, they went back up, they took a dive, they're all over the place, not doing great, as far as I know. I mean, am I wrong about that? No, I think you're right. I mean, I joke with my brother a lot that the Dow Jones seems to be disconnected from reality in the way that it shifts up and down by right. thousand point swings for no particular reason at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's been a crazy time for all investments. In the first couple of weeks, I watched my crypto portfolio uh, basically cut in half. And it's on basically on the upswing now. It's good to see Bitcoin back over 7,000. And it's a good test, I guess, for the store of value aspect of cryptocurrency to see how it weathers this storm compared to securities, you know, because that's a big argument for a lot of people that whether or not the whole crypto market is just speculation from institutional investors or if it's actually, you know, people who believe in it. So that's one thing that I'm watching closely. Well, I do think that there's a million different ways to look at it, right? Like I've been in the industry for a few years now. There's a million different ways to look at these price fluctuations in crypto. But I I would think a conservative kind of overview of the whole thing would say that since crypto still, like you said, it's a little bit over $7,000, obviously this podcast will be released in a few days. So it could 
be completely different at that point. But the fact that it's still, you know, in the thousands, it kind of says something to its longevity. And it's not down to like, you know, $3 or something like that. It hasn't been completely killed. You know, of course, some people will look at it and say, oh, it's not $20,000 per Bitcoin anymore. And that's terrible. But of course, I think, again, a more like conservative looking approach to it would say it's doing fine. I mean, it's really not been too affected by everything. It's been affected, but not terribly. By and large, if you if you're looking at the trend lines, they're they're pretty much mirroring what the stock market's doing, you know, and which makes sense in this time of uncertainty. But you're you're very right; it could have very easily gone down to three dollars a Bitcoin or whatever, and we'd be having a whole different conversation today. I think. Yeah, yeah, we may not even be having the conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> nobody's nobody's going to be doing their taxes on uh, on the three dollar. No, we got to get all those losses in though. So that yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, at the same time, crypto though is unique in the sense that. We're talking about germs and how the spread of the disease happens. Obviously, as I mentioned, some of the guidance that we received is is a little shaky. But last I heard, there wasn't too much worry about using fiat currency like the dollar bill in terms of the spread. I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that or take that as, you know, fact as you would generally think dollar bills and money would have germs on them anyway. Yeah, I mean, money's pretty gross. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, In general, you, that's kind of what we've always thought is that money was gross. I mean, you don't want to like touch the money and then like eat some food. That was just kind of common sense. But crypto is unique in the sense that obviously there's no physical trading. So you can send somebody some money, you know, without having to worry about that virus spread. So it is in a unique position in that instance. Yeah. And there's questions even, you know, when we're talking about going to pick up our takeout orders, if you're paying by credit card, like you have to get close enough to someone to hand them your card to process it, right? So, and then you don't know when's the last time they washed their hands and they don't know when's the last time you've washed your hands and yeah. et cetera. So it, it's kind of like, you know, from a social relationship standpoint, it's made everyone a little more paranoid on a, on a daily basis interacting with strangers. And it's interesting you bring that up in the stimulus bill, the what we call phase three, which is now known as the CARES Act, that was stalled in the Senate for a while while they were debating it. And the House at that point in time had introduced their own bill that had some of the same stuff, but also had buried in the middle of it the introduction of the digital dollar and a what would be basically a digital wallet for all Americans. And the idea behind it was, as you see, everyone's asking me as, as a tax professional, hey, when am, when am I getting my stimulus check? And the answer is nobody knows at this yeah. point, hopefully soon. But the idea behind these digital wallets would be that it would be much quicker for the government in a stimulus situation like this to just put money in everybody's wallet you know, they could do it almost instantaneously, as opposed to like one of the big issues with the IRS right now is there's a physical limitation to the number of checks they can print in a week. And so if every American needs to get a check, it can take a long time to get through physically printing all those checks, which is why they're, you know, strongly encouraging everyone to submit their direct deposit data once that a portal that they're supposedly creating is up. But this digital dollar is a really interesting idea, and it shows that there might be uh, some political will for that moving forward. And I'm really interested to see how that's going to impact the crypto space, especially around taxation, because there's no way we could have a digital dollar that functions with the same property-related taxation rules that we currently have for cryptocurrency. So there's a lot going on there, and uh, you know maybe it took that crisis to get it to the forefront, but I'd like to see that move forward. Right. And you can see in other countries, like uh, it is kicking it up into higher gear, like in China. I'd read an article about the Chinese central bank starting to talk more about their cryptocurrency, their own cryptocurrency, or to start working harder on their cryptocurrency. So it's definitely pushing a lot of countries into thinking realistically about having a currency specific to that country. You know, it's interesting, though, you had mentioned it's not going to follow the same kind of guidelines, property guidelines that we have on cryptocurrency now. But I would imagine that it would certainly still be taxed. I mean, the federal government issuing a cryptocurrency, of course, this is all just speculation, but I would imagine that something like that would certainly still have, you know, taxes associated with it. Oh, yeah, I think it would. I mean, we would probably expect it to function, you know, more like a stable coin. Hmm. But I mean, you couldn't expect the average general population to keep the meticulous records that crypto enthusiasts are required to keep now. And we you know we always talk about the cup of coffee, you know, with buying a cup of coffee with your Bitcoin and the amount of ridiculous record keeping that is required to calculate the capital gains on that is really a turnoff for a lot of people, right? And so either people just don't do it and they don't report it on their taxes or they just re don't use the cryptocurrency because of the reporting requirements that come along with it. 
I think though, in this case, like if you think about a digital wallet, as was talked about in the stimulus bill draft, I think that if they looked into everything enough, I think there would be a way to kind of do it where the records would still be kept. They could do it all on the blockchain too. They could use blockchain to keep the records, but also like you log into your bank account to see what you spent money on. It could show the records of what you spent this money, this digital dollar on. And as long as they provided the proper files, you know, to export and to import into like Bitcoin.tax or something, it wouldn't be so difficult to account for capital gains. It would be very confusing, I'm sure, for the layman. But I feel like there would be a, a way that they could do it if they put enough work into it. Oh, yeah, it's definitely doable. And, you know, really, when you go into your bank account now, those are basically digital dollars, right? You know, it's just a representation of a physical dollar that exactly. you don't actually have. It's a ledger, too. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just, you know, whether or not it's going to be secured by the blockchain or, or not, you know, you can export your CSVs the same way. And, you know, and if everybody used a service like Bitcoin.tax, it would make the world a lot easier. But, you know, there's the people that run the complete spectrum of that. You know, I have a client who writes down all of his trades in like a notebook. And then he comes and sits down with me and I physically like manually import them all into Bitcoin.tax. Hmm. It's very tedious. He doesn't mind paying for the service. So <laughs> it, it works out for both of us, but it's not, you know, it's amazing that there are a lot of people who use cryptocurrency who are not really comfortable using computers. And it's just a, you know, there's a wide variety of people in this space. And so like assuming that all of them are able to be technically aware enough to, to use services like yours, you know, is not necessarily always the case. Oh, yeah. I mean, I encounter people every day. And this is not meant to be an insult. But I do encounter people every day that have tons of cryptocurrency, but seem to have such a low level of technical knowledge, that to me, it seems like there's two really main groups. There's people that are in crypto. And I've said this before, people that are in crypto because of the tech, and you know, like to trade us and stuff as well. But then there are people that are into crypto, primarily for trading and might not have, you know, they have money and they just, they like stocks and they're like, Hey, I want to make some money on cryptocurrencies. Yeah. I heard this Bitcoin thing was a sure bet. So I'm exactly. yeah. That. Yeah. I remember there was one guy who reached out to me back in 2017 who had taken pictures of his Coinbase ledger on the screen and printed them out and mailed them to me. <laughs> and, and I was like, I really don't know what you want me to do with this, yeah. man. Like, this is just not going to get us there. Yeah, I certainly have received a folder with a bunch of like JPEG files in it and just asked me to, you know, hey, can you import this data? I'm like, ah, uh, like 50, 50 JPEGs in here. Are you able to do <laughs> something a little bit better for me? Or, you know, it's tough, but yeah, interesting. You know what I wanted to kind of bring up? Have you heard about the scandal with those four senators like Kelly Loeffler who sold a bunch of their stocks before the coronavirus? Did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah. Kelly Loeffler was the CEO of BAC. Oh, really? I, I didn't yeah. know that connection either. I really do hope that that gets investigated because that was really sketchy, especially there was some, some leaked audio. I don't remember which senator it was that had given a very different perspective of the whole you know situation then they were giving publicly and then went and sold a whole bunch of stocks. He was saying that it wasn't too much to worry about. And then he still sold all his stocks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it turned out there was, I think, a number of members of Congress who had, you know, whether or not they traded on inside information. And, and we know in our area, Sale, that a member of the House was recently convicted of insider trading. So it's definitely something that hopefully gets investigated after all this is done. Was that Chris Collins? Chris Collins out of Buffalo, yeah. He was but, still popular, too. After yeah, he, he won re-election <laughs> exactly. after being indicted. Yeah, and he was, uh, I think he had just provided information to his son to trade on, and, and he didn't even do the trading himself. So with these members of Congress having uh, allegedly done this, I, I really hope that something comes out of that. And, you know, interestingly, it's like these things are bringing people together. Like I was talking about, you know, everybody coming together. A lot of this stuff is bipartisan, right? Like this was a bipartisan scandal. People on both sides were involved in the scandal of selling the stocks. And coronavirus is kind of bringing everybody together in a sense that, you know, we've not really seen this kind of like bipartisanship before, but either both sides are affected or both sides are doing sketchy things. So it really is like, you know, bringing a lot of people together, it seems like. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, there was outrage over this, the voting in Wisconsin and how all that went down at the last minute and a lot of bipartisan anger towards that. And it's a time for all of us to come together over the political divide, which has, you know, just been getting bigger and bigger in the more recent years. Yeah. And I think it's probably easier for people like us who aren't in politics to say to come together and to also come together, whereas politicians are kind of 
notoriously they're stuck in their ways and you know they have their own agendas that they have to deal with so it's not going to be as easy for them probably to come together i mean the stimulus bill was bipartisan and it it took a lot longer than they had initially said that it was going to take to pass but that was a bipartisan effort to help the american people which is good but i guess you can't expect rome to be built in a day it's going to take some time for everything to come together but it's interesting, certainly. There's a lot of effects of the coronavirus. As terrible as it is, there's a lot of interesting effects that are probably going to be studied for years and years and years, and we're probably going to feel the effects of for years and years and years that are a result of the coronavirus. Oh, yeah. I've been, this is a uh, sociologist paradise <laughs> for collecting data right now. Just Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Matt. So on our past episode, we talked about the IRS revenue ruling uh, 19-24, and you talked a little bit about that, kind of explained what it meant. Obviously, there's a lot going on. We can't expect too much new guidance. But in the beginning of March, there was actually a crypto IRS summit, right? Yeah. Like we said, since that revenue ruling, we haven't seen much of anything officially come out of the IRS and and all the air has been sucked out of the room right now on that topic. But they did before all this happened. March 3rd, there was a crypto summit in DC. It was invite only. And it was not necessarily geared towards the personal side of taxation, but there was some of that discussed. It was a lot of uh, the industry side. So there was representatives from exchanges there and things like that. One of the big things that they were looking to do was sort of have a central repository of tax transaction information to kind of create a standardized form, which doesn't exist right now for cryptocurrency reporting. So right now, if you were to sell securities, for example, your broker would send you a 1099-B that shows your proceeds and your cost basis, and they also send that to the IRS. And with that, you don't need to calculate your gains and losses on your own or put all that detail in your tax return. You can just attach the PDF and send it off. And the exchanges really pushed back on that because it's very difficult to track that basis information when, you know, it's one thing if you buy your coins on Coinbase, you keep your coins on Coinbase, and you sell your coins on Coinbase, all of that information is there. But if you buy them on Kraken and transfer them to Gemini and transfer them to Polo and then transfer them to your own wallet and then transfer them to Coinbase and sell them, you know, Coinbase has no way of going back and finding out what that basis information is to report it correctly. And that is the hurdle that basically needs to be overcome at this point. Which Um, is why something like Bitcoin.tax exists and, you know, not to plug the software, but that's exactly what our service does. But right, it's it would be impossible for Coinbase or for any singular exchange to do that on their own, you know, without having a service like ours either, you know, implemented into their service or without utilizing a service like ours. And that's illustrated by the 1099Ks that are being released by like Coinbase and the utter confusion and dread that they cause when people receive those. Yeah, the 1099K was never designed for the way that it's being used by crypto exchanges. It's for companies like PayPal or your credit card processor when you're running a business to show the amount of money that you transferred in through your sales. And then you put that on you know, your business return or your Schedule C, and then you have your expenses against that. And what happens now is if you meet the threshold, which is 200 transactions and $20,000 in gross proceeds, which is easy to do if you're trading a lot, you get this 1099K that shows that you uh, had $3 million worth of Bitcoin transfer through your account when you really only made like a thousand dollars or something and so if you ignore it you'll get a letter from the irs saying that you uh, need to pay tax on this three million Mm dollars and there's really no good way to report it on your return and still follow the rules with the tax return and i've said it before it's it's interesting that it falls on people i mean you're a tax professional i'm not a tax professional obviously i'm in the tax space i deal with taxes a lot but it, it it is kind of uh, sad that it falls on somebody like me to inform people that how a 1099k works. You know, like it's it's unfortunate that these exchanges aren't issuing that kind of information, or the IRS isn't in- issuing information. People are terrified when they message us and talk about, you know, hey, I have these 1099ks. They said I made, you know, a million dollars. What's that all about? The IRS is not known lately for its customer service levels. So you get this letter, and even in the pre-COVID times, it was really difficult to get somebody on the on the phone with the at the IRS, right? And so you get this letter that says you owe tax on three million dollars, which is going to be probably close to like a million and a half that they're wanting to collect from you, and you can't get anybody on the phone. You know, you're going to lose a lot of sleep over that. And so it's it's just really unfortunate that we haven't gotten a solution to that. So one of the things the IRS had proposed at this summit was a centralized depository 
of every crypto transaction that has happened, basically, which the exchanges obviously were not super keen about because there are technological hurdles to overcome with that. But there's also security and privacy risks around that too, right? Because you might not even be a citizen of the United States or have ever been to the United States. And now your exchange is, is dumping data into this United States government database about what you're using, your, you know, where your cryptocurrency is going. There's a lot of hurdles to overcome there. And so this is just the very beginning baby steps of it. And I mean, to me, like you said, there's a lot of hurdles, but that sounds almost impossible, right? Like that with all the different exchanges that there are, with all of the kind of like over-the-counter trades that exist, I mean, a central repository would would seem to be almost impossible. Would you agree? I would agree 100% that it's basically impossible. Even just from a technological standpoint or technical standpoint, I mean, you see firsthand all the time, all the different formats that this data is coming out in, right? Mm -hmm. And the data formatting is so unique to each exchange. And, you know, we as tax professionals, a lot of times are trying, you know, you you get this one-off client who uses this one-off exchange that you've never heard of and you can't make heads or tails of the data and you're trying to manually reformat it. You know, it's really, really difficult, right? And so I don't see how the U.S. government would be able to do that better than the uh, private companies that have already been trying to work with that for a number of years. Yeah, they've had to hire all of us to consult. <laughs> because, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I mean, these exchanges, not only that, not only are the forms also different, but they also commonly change their exports without letting people know. And a lot of times they're wrong. So we've had some customers that have emailed us about Poloniex exports, where the Poloniex fees seem a lot higher than they should be. And you know that's something that Poloniex, they changed their file export with those new fees in them. And Customers may not even realize that they're saying that they paid much higher fees than they actually did. So there's a lot that these exchanges, they don't really think about the tax implications a lot of times, these, these exchanges. So No, n- not at all. And, and, you know, another issue that happened this year, another major exchange that rhymes with Boeing case, uh, <laughs> <laughs> changed, uh, changed the, the report formatting multiple times mm-hmm. in the middle of tax season. And so people are sending me reports. And the reports stopped working, you know what I mean? Because they're, they're not in the same format that they were a couple of days ago. And, you know, especially the, the, the tax report that comes out of there is not really helpful. And they got rid of the one good report, which was the buy, sells, and merchant payouts, and replaced it with this other transaction report that sometimes has the data that you need and sometimes doesn't. And it was very frustrating, you know, trying to get accurate calculations when you couldn't even rely on the reports on a regular basis. Yeah, and Boincase is one of the largest and most used exchanges, you know, in the states. And we we're talking a lot about government accountability and how corporations have shown their true colors during a lot of all of this. And it really illustrates that it seems like a lot of just children are running things in terms of uh, a lot of the organizations that we see because these are such big organizations doing these things that just seem so for lack of better words, I guess, idiotic or incorrect. You know what I mean? So it's unfortunate that that's the case. And then people like us have to, to tell people that it's going on or alert the exchanges that it's going on. You know, you think they would have some sort of tax expert on their team or tax team, you know, that accounts for all this. I'm curious. I wonder if, you know, Boeing case has, uh, you know, a tax team involved. They have to, I would imagine. I would assume they do, but it doesn't necess- it doesn't seem like taxation is a priority for the information that they're putting out. And I get it because, you know, they operate all over the world and we kind of get U.S. centric and, and be like, well, you have to have, have these reports for U.S. taxes. But every country is kind of doing this in their own way as well, which is not helping anything. So you, you would think they'd offer that level of customer service, but uh, apparently that's not a priority at the moment. I would agree. I would think that, you know, you're right about it. You know, people in the States, we classically do get, you know, very U.S. centric and that's understandable. But at the same time, you would think that these huge organizations and huge exchanges would have to almost account for the fact that taxation, crypto taxation varies throughout the world. So, you know, we're in this business. We've made a lot of money in this business. We now need to account for that for our customers. I mean, at some point, I think that that's going to have to happen. Otherwise, it just seems like it's the Wild West still. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it still is, you know, and and every time we feel like we're making progress, something big tax wise happens. So like we were hoping we'd finally get some guidance, 
you know, back in 2017. And then the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act happened and everything crypto related just got shoved to the side. And we're finally, we're getting some crypto guidance, you know, in 2019 and early 2020 coming out of the IRS. And now this happens and who knows how long it'll take the IRS to get back up to speed because they're not doing any of the work right now. And so there's going to be a huge backlog of cases of returns are still being processed. I don't want anybody to misinterpret that. Uh, so if you file your tax return, you're still going to get your refund. But anything outside of that, if you're you know, in audit or appeals or collections, those are all sort of suspended right now. And there's going to be a huge backlog of that stuff once the IRS reopens at full strength. You know, it's funny because the optimist in me wants to think that the coronavirus will affect crypto positively. And that since we're going to have more of a reliance on cryptocurrency and the fact that they were talking about digital dollars in the stimulus, that we'll have guidance sooner due to that. However, the realist in me knows that this is going to make the any official guidance that we receive, it's going to be a long time before we receive official guidance on crypto because it's probably not going to be a priority. Even though it's very important in this day and age, it's probably not going to be a priority in the IRS's eyes, in my opinion. It's, yeah, I agree with you because it's just such a small percentage of people still using it. I mean, we're in this area every day and it's exactly. easy to get sort of that bias where you think everybody knows about crypto and everybody has a crypto wallet on their phone. And, and uh, But really, uh, you know, it's just not that mainstream yet. So it's not really a priority for the limited resources that they have at IRS. Yeah. I saw uh, just a random post on Reddit in like a non-cryptocurrency. Oh, you know what? It was in an, it was in this post about some Nintendo Switch game that was delayed. And there was all these rumors going on that there was like a cryptocurrency miner in the, in the game, which I think turned out to be completely false. But I saw somebody post in there that said, you know, this is unrealistic. As far as I know, crypto's dead. Bitcoin's dead. And I was like, what? <laughs> right? I was like, this is the entire industry that my life revolves around. This is insane to me that just some random person in this thread is saying that the crypto industry is just, oh, it doesn't even exist anymore. It was yeah, really weird to see that. It was just one little blip in 2017 and now it's gone. <laughs> and, now we're and, all underground. But apparently that's how some people still view it. You know, I mean, that's, again, you're right. hundred percent. We don't view it like that because we're in that space, but Apparently, that's how some people in the general public do view it, which is wild. Yeah. Something for everybody to keep in mind, too, right? Like crypto enthusiasts, everybody should keep that in mind that it's not as important to everybody else as it is to us. Yeah, I get that myopic about, you know, tax deadlines and stuff, too, right? Like, I assume everybody's following this as closely as I am, but they're not. They're definitely not. I've had some clients still reach out to me and not know that the deadline has been extended. Right. And that's why at the beginning of the show, I was like, you know, hey, we, you know, most people probably know about it, but just in case not, because there could be that one person that's listening to the show that's like, what? The tax deadline's extended? And you know what? That's great. Maybe they have a lot of other stuff going on. I have a, a cousin that just had a baby. And every time I see her on Facebook, she seems completely oblivious to everything going on. But I'm like, you know what? She has a newborn baby, her first baby. She's probably in that, you know, that life, right? Like not worrying about what's going on in the world necessarily. So you have to think like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe it's for a mental health standpoint, it's better. Yeah. Yeah. So also at this summit, so the uh, schedule one question that we talked about the last time I was on came up. And one of the, the issues with that is the phrase financial interest. And I don't have a schedule one question in front of me, but it's, did you buy, sell, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any cryptocurrency in 2019? And that otherwise acquire any financial interest is a very vague question, right? Does that mean if I was just holding my stuff and I got an airdrop, have I now acquired a, a, you know, an airdrop of a garbage coin that was worth 30 cents? Do I have I acquired a financial interest and should I answer yes on the tax return? And if I don't, am I committing perjury? Right. So there's yeah, a if lot you, of- if you signed up for a random exchange without even thinking about it and they gave you some free uh, crypto as a result of signing up and you completely forgot about it. Is that financial interest, right? Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of these, you know, we never really got that definitive information on airdrops. And, you know, they use the word airdrop a lot in that revenue ruling, but they were really referring to hard forks. But, I, you know, I just pulled up my ERC20 wallet real quick and I have a EBK coin, which is worth two cents. Hmm. So should I be reporting that two cents on my tax return, which is going to round down to zero? You know, and they never really gave us any guidance of what to do with this stuff. 
that we don't necessarily want. Kick token, that was a big one, right? That a lot of uh, Ethereum holders got. And you can only exchange it on their proprietary exchange, which exists in China. And you have to provide uh, KYC information in order to do that. So this, hmm. there's that potential security risk around that. And the value that that Etherscan was providing uh, when this token first dropped was around $600 for the, most people got 888,888 mm-hmm. kick tokens, which eight is a, is a lucky number in China. Interesting. Yeah. And so it was saying it had a value of like $650, but only on this one exchange that you can't access unless you send them your driver's license. And right now, Etherscan is saying it's the same kick tokens that I got are worth $6. Uh, so that's a 99% loss over the course of a couple of months. And so how do you determine the fair market value of that if it ever had one at all is a really uh, interesting question. Yeah, and that's one of those those situations where, I mean, it seems like that exchange that issued that crypto is clearly just like taking advantage of the way that the crypto space works. As far as I understand, I mean, I remember people talking about receiving that coin and asking us what to do about that coin, but I didn't really look too much into it past that. But it's, to me, it just seems like a scam. It might not be, but to me, hearing about it sounds just kind of scammy, right? Yeah, it came off very scammy to me. And I haven't, you know, I'm not touching it, especially now for $6. Even at $6.50, allegedly, it, it wasn't worth the risk of, of providing all my personal information to some random organization on the internet to chase this token that might have actually had value, but probably didn't. Right. You know, most, most of us realize that if somebody offers you $600 for no reason, something else is going on, right? Like, I mean, either either you're on some popular YouTube channel where they're just giving away free money for the likes or you're getting scammed. Those are the yeah. two possibilities in life nowadays. In 2020, those are the two possibilities. <laughs> I got a lead from uh, through my website the other day where someone emailed me and they were on some site where they were supposedly given uh, $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, uh, but they had to send over uh, 0.2 Bitcoin to access it or something like that. Like, are you serious? Yeah, you think yeah. this, someone's just giving you $100,000, yeah, but people are still falling for it. So. And that was, a, that was a popular scam that was going on on Twitter where they would like make accounts that looked like rich people or people that were well-known in the crypto space. And it would say something like, like Elon Musk was one of them, right? It was a bunch of like mm-hmm. fake Elon Musk accounts. And it was like, hey, you know, I'm giving people a random amount of crypto. Send me whatever, point zero zero one bitcoin and i'm going to send you anywhere from one to ten bitcoin and people were falling for that left and right i mean because it seemed like such a small amount for them to send at the time like oh maybe this is like 20 30 bucks worth of crypto to send and i'm gonna get like you know a thousand five thousand dollars possibly worth of crypto what a good chance this is and yeah people were raking in the crypto the the scammers were raking it in man yeah if you get enough people to participate every time yeah. I see any sort of scam or ransomware or stuff where they have a public address listed, I always go just go check that address out on the blockchain to see how many people yeah. uh, have fallen for. I'm always happy when I see that there's been no transactions on it. yeah, you got to really just keep yourself informed. I mean, this is a whole psychology philosophy argument, but like people will try and take advantage of you during a crisis. You know, we're talking about coming together, but there are, of course, people out there. Obviously, there's tons of IRS scams already about the stimulus, people scamming people saying that, hey, give me your information so we can get you your stimulus check. I saw fake testing things being set up where people were, it was like a fake coronavirus testing site where people were giving out fake tests for money. They were saying, pay us this much money, we'll test you for coronavirus. And it was just a big scam. So people really need to be careful during these times and realize that not everybody's good and that some people are out there to just take your money and you really have to do your research. I hope anybody listening to this that's into crypto does their research anytime something like that pops up. I know that's not the case, but I hope you do. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, speaking of scams around the stimulus payment, so like I mentioned there, right now they're estimating it's going to take 20 weeks to print all these checks based on the printing capacity at the IRS. So they really want people to use direct deposit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the IRS is setting up a portal so you can update your direct deposit information if you haven't used direct deposit in the past. And one of the hurdles around that is making it secure enough that, you know, if I had got your social security number and your address somewhere else, what is going to stop me from going on there and putting in your information and my bank account to steal your stimulus payment. So they really are, are trying to figure out how to overcome that security hurdle to make sure that everyone is going to uh, get the payment that they're supposed to get. Yeah, that's a good point. I know they had mentioned that they're going to eventually send out a form after the stimulus payment goes out that says, hey, this is where your stimulus payment went. 
which will be good, I guess, like afterwards to figure out if you did get scammed, like where it went, but it doesn't really help the people that are really, you know, in need of that money at this moment. If somebody took yeah. their money, like, oh, here's a note two weeks later that says, this is who got your money. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, I, I had heard on another podcast, they joked that at least the scammer is going to go out and spend the money, so it's still going to have the desired <laughs> intent. You know? Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, the only person that gets screwed there is the person that got scammed. Yeah, some other stuff that came out of this summit was the question around, so if you donate property and the value is worth more than $5,000, you have to have it appraised by a qualified appraiser. So there's a lot of questions to how that works if I'm donating my cryptocurrency as property and it's worth more than $5,000, how you would actually appraise that, right? And who would be a qualified appraiser in that situation? So that's one thing that is still open. And another one that's, that's interesting to you personally would be that a question was brought up from the audience about the use of cryptocurrency tax calculators. And we know, in addition to Bitcoin.tax, there's dozens of those out on the market. And what the question was about is if you take the same data, same CSV files, and process them through all these calculators, you don't necessarily get the same results on every site. And, you know, most sites are using their own lookup databases for historical pricing. And that typically can result for a lot of that difference, maybe not necessarily all of it. But one of the things that came out of that summit was that people should be doing, taxpayers should be doing their due diligence about the sites that they use and the calculation methods being used to make sure that they're accurate and not just taking any random number that gets spit out of a calculator uh, and throwing it on your tax return. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've had people write into us and say, hey, I have unmatched trades when I enter my data into Bitcoin.tax, but when I put it on this service, I don't have any unmatched trades. And I have to say to them, like, listen, we're telling you you have unmatched trades because you're missing some data. Something's wrong with the data you entered. We're giving you a heads up that the data you entered is wrong somehow. Their service, I don't know, you know, there's, like you said, there's a bunch of different services out there. We don't know how their service operates. We don't know if they tell you if you have errors in your account or if they just do a zero cost basis for everything and say, hey, here's your capital gain figure. You owe you know, $50,000 when in reality, it should be like $3,000 or something. And there can be huge variances too. I know back in, in 2017, I had done this kind of research myself and taken my own personal CSVs and uploaded them to a whole bunch of sites just to get, you know, see where the results came out, you know. And then I had also done it manually as kind of a, a validation because uh, I didn't have a lot of trades. I just had a handful of trades. Some sites showed a gain and some sites showed a loss, uh, which was really confusing. There was a gain overall. So it's definitely worth the time to uh, make sure that the information you're using is accurate. You know, and obviously, uh, I trust the results that come out of you guys. So it's worth it for people to go and check that out. Yeah. And of course, you know, obviously we want people to use our service. There's a bunch of different services. They can use whatever service they want, but we always encourage people to, to write into us, to email us if they have an issue with their data or what their data is telling them. I mean, I deal with so many people that say, you know, Hey, I should really only be paying a few thousand dollars here, but your service is telling me, you know, I owe, I owe 10,000. One of my first thoughts is if you know, you only owe a few thousand dollars, why do you need a software to tell you that you owe this much money? Because a lot of times I think people expect one thing and they're surprised by the result. And that's just reality, right? Like you may think you owe one thing and in reality you, you owe the other thing. But we always help people with their data. We always try to, if somebody has an issue with any of the data that they imported, we always try to help them either come to terms with it or fix it or help explain what's going on with it. So it is, it's important though for those people to either do their own research, or to reach out to the service that they're using and to ask them for some clarification on why the results are a certain way. Yeah. And, you know, educating yourself is, is important too. I have a, an example, a client I worked with in 2017, they sent me their files and I calculated their gains. You know, I gave them all the reports and their closing position. And then in 2018, they decided to do it themselves. And then in 2019, they came back to me to do it again. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, where's your closing position from 2018? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's not just this year's stuff, right? Like you've had this stuff for more than one year. We have to calculate the big picture. And a lot of times people don't consider that. Like, oh, I just want you to calculate my 2019 gains. I'm like, okay, but you've been trading since 2012. <laughs> where's the rest of that information? We need that. And that's so common. And again, that's a, one of those things where I think when you mentioned like, you know, we have these kind of blinders on where we're in this space and it seems so obvious to us that if you traded crypto in past years and you still have some of that crypto, I mean, you need all of that data. Basically, if you're trading crypto, when you're doing your crypto taxes, you have to have all your data for accurate 
capital gains calculations. That's just the way it is. You have to have that data. But people don't understand that. A lot of people do reach out to us and say, hey, you know, I just want to do my 2019 taxes. I don't care about 2016, 2017, 2018, where I bought, you know, 300 Bitcoin and traded a bunch of Ethereum. I don't care about that. I just want to know about 2019. So here's 30 bucks to do 2019 for me. Exactly, so, right. You can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, it's surprising, but I guess that's just, I don't know how that happens, but it does. It, it certainly is happening. So clearly people don't understand it as much as they need to. And that's, again, not to shill the podcast, but that's why this podcast kind of exists to, there's not a lot of podcasts to talk about cryptocurrency taxation. And we've talked a lot about cryptocurrency taxation. So hopefully people that are listening are learning things and learning that the things that we're talking about, they need to understand in order to do the crypto taxes. Yeah, absolutely. I had some people reach out to me after the last time I was on and they had learned a whole bunch of stuff. So that was, uh, you know, people are learning from it. So I think that's helpful. Nice. Those are actually all sock puppet accounts of mine that I just messaged you and pretended as, that. <laughs> as, as long as your credit card's valid, that's fine. <laughs> you, you can do that all you want. <laughs> oh, man. I walked, yeah, all the credit I cards walked, had your, I walked had right your into name that. on it. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. I actually had some of my current clients heard the episode too and reached out to me and said they learned some stuff from it. So yeah, it's out. definitely a very like, you know, I've said this before too, crypto is a, a niche kind of space and crypto taxation even more so, but there are a lot of people that do benefit from these podcasts. We have a lot of listeners and so I'm happy to provide this information out there for anybody uh, that is listening. And of course, anybody that's listening is welcome to email us, ask us if they have any questions. We're happy to ask those questions in future podcasts, happy to reach out to our guests. If you have a question for Matt and you're too shy to email Matt, you're welcome to email us and we'll reach out to Matt, try and get an answer for you. So we're, we're all about helping people as much as we can. We're great people over here. Yeah. <laughs> we care so much. Really, though, we do. We do care. We do care. Sharing, sharing is caring. That's right. That's right. Let's come together as, as crypto enthusiasts. So a good segue from uh, coming together is the opposite, splitting apart, is the Bitcoin Cash halving. If you don't mind, explain what a halving is for anybody that's not familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, totally. So the way the whole blockchain is designed is that you have your miners who are validating the transactions in each block. And every time they complete a block and solve the block. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds, mm -hmm. but there's some cryptographic brute forcing going on in order to get the hash results required for the block to validate all those transactions. And so it takes a lot of computing power, which is why, you know, we hear about these mining farms that are next to hydroelectric dams and stuff like that. You're using all this computer power to solve complex mathematical equations. Uh, and if you do it right, you get what's called the block reward. So Currently, let's say that's when Bitcoin first originated, that started at 50 Bitcoin per block. So, any, And uh, a block happens every 10 minutes or so. So you solve your block, you would have gotten 50 Bitcoin. At that time, you know, that would have been worth like what, uh, 20 cents or something. Mm, right. <laughs> uh, 50 Bitcoin now is, is worth, you know, substantially more. But as time went on, that every certain number of blocks, that results the, the block reward gets cut in half, which is mm -hmm. why it's called a halving. So it went from 50 to 25, and currently the block reward for Bitcoin is 12 and a half. Sometime in May uh, will be the Bitcoin halving, and then the block reward will become six and a quarter Bitcoin per block, which is what happened with Bitcoin Cash today. It went from 12 and a half to six and a quarter. So if you're used to getting you know, 12 Bitcoin at $7,000 or so right now, you know, you can do the math on that to figure out what your reward is. But after the halving, you're going to get half as much, obviously. And so the question becomes, what happens to the price of Bitcoin at that point in time? And historically, we've seen quite a substantial increase in the value of Bitcoin around the time of the halving. So there's a lot of speculation if that's going to be the case now, or if people have kind of built that in to their perceived value of Bitcoin, knowing that the halving is coming up in May. So we, we just won't know until that happens at this point. Yeah. And in a perfect world, without any other variables, this would result in the price of Bitcoin cash increasing because it takes more time now to get more to mine that Bitcoin cash. However, there's obviously a bunch of other variables involved in this. So as you said, we, we kind of have to see where this is going to go in terms of how it's going to affect the price, how it's going to affect the whole Bitcoin cash uh, and Bitcoin universe. Yeah. And the idea behind it is there's a, a fundamental finite limit to the number of Bitcoin, which is set at 21 million. And so 
as time progresses, roughly every four years or so, we have a halving event and we'll eventually get down to you know, infinitely low amount of Bitcoin mm-hmm. from each block because we'll, we'll get closer and closer to that 21 million limit. And it's kind of a built-in deflationary mechanism to make sure that everyone is on the same playing field. In contrast, you know, on the very opposite end of the spectrum, the federal government printed $2 trillion worth of new money in the last couple of weeks that didn't exist uh, prior to that. You know, so there's um, very different schools of thought without getting too far into economic policy in the idea behind why we have this uh, happening take place. Yeah, certainly interesting. I mean, there, we could talk for hours about everything about that. I mean, it, just the fact that you brought that up is what makes Bitcoin so interesting to so many people. The fact that there is kind of like a built-in deflationary mechanic in there is very interesting in itself. And comparing it to traditional money where the government can just print money and everything like that. There's so much going on there, right? And again, that could fuel a million different conversations. And it has fueled plenty of conversations about cryptocurrency in general. But as of now, obviously, we can't discuss all of that. But it's still very interesting. If you don't know too much about it, I encourage you to look it up. There's a lot of resources out there about the having and just you know, the cryptocurrency ecosystem in general. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting just from an academic standpoint to kind of look on the thought process. And not every cryptocurrency is the same. You know, we're talking specifically about Bitcoin and Bitcoin forks, but not every uh, cryptocurrency works under that model. You know, what's interesting for me to think about is that Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin Cash is a fork of Bitcoin, the kind of uh, people that support each coin, they seem to be like in uh, opposition, right? Would you agree with that? Well, absolutely. Especially when it comes to Bitcoin forks, you know, when you look at, you know, the Satoshi's vision people versus the Bitcoin cash ABC people, which is what, you know, we call Bitcoin cash now. But at the time of that fork, it was really philosophically divisive more than anything else. So even between Bitcoin cash, as we know it, and Bitcoin in general, there seems to be some favor toward one point or the other. But it's interesting that they both have the same kind of built-in mechanism. So since Bitcoin had that mechanism built in, when it forked off to Bitcoin Cash, did that mechanism remain in Bitcoin Cash? And that's why Bitcoin Cash is having as well? Yeah, it basically had to remain because the way that, that the blockchain works is every block depends on the block that occurred previously. So prior to the, to the fork of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, both of these blockchains were exactly the same. So the Bitcoin Cash blockchain you can historically trace all the way back to the genesis block of Bitcoin. Some of those fundamental protocols, like the halving, I I mean, I guess you could technically hard fork them away, but it would be harder to do than to keep the protocol running the same way. We'll have to have uh, more discussions about the technical nature of Bitcoin, because again, there's a lot of, or technical nature of crypto, because there's a lot of people that are just in it for trading and would probably benefit from knowing a little bit more about the actual technology behind it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Things start to make a lot more sense when you start to look at some of the technical stuff. So when I do presentations for tax professionals who don't really know anything about crypto and just have clients who are working with it and need to get the baseline, I still start with, you know, basic information of how a blockchain works outside of the cryptocurrency space, just so they have that fundamental knowledge and, and everything sort of hopefully clicks a little bit better when you understand that the ledger is immutable and everything relies on everything that came before it. Otherwise, you know, the whole thing falls apart. And that is the like inherent security built into having a distributed ledger to begin with. Right. Yeah. And I'm still looking for the perfect answer though, for when somebody who has no idea about crypto basically asks me, you know, so what is crypto? <laughs> what, what is Bitcoin? I don't get it. What is Bitcoin? It's like, where do you start? You know what I mean? Like, what is the perfect answer in that, you know, to get them to understand it? Yeah, somewhere between what we just said and magic internet money. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like an infograph would probably be, people seem to respond to infographs pretty easily. So I think, uh, I'm sure one exists, a nice in- infograph of what Bitcoin is. Totally. You start printing that out and giving it to people. Since people aren't used to like uh, screenshotting or print screening, I'll do what you said your client did. I'll, I'll print <laughs> them out and then I'll mail them, snail mail to people. Yeah, take a picture with your camera though so it's out of focus too. So <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I appreciate you coming on today, Matt. Thanks again for coming back on the show. It was great talking to you. You provided a lot of good information. I'm always happy to be here, Sal. Thank you for having me. Great. And I'm sure we'll have you back. And, you know, we'll have your contact information on the site, but can you provide uh, your contact information for people that want to get in touch with you? 
Yeah, the best way uh, to get a hold of me is through either the website, which is bitcointaxes.me, or just shoot me an email, which is the same thing, uh, info at bitcointaxes.me. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me, but you can also, I'm on Twitter a lot. Not always tax or uh, cryptocurrency related because uh, it's sort of intersectional throughout all the aspects of my life, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of information on Twitter as well. Yeah, and uh, I can definitely vouch for Matt's intelligence and knowledge when it comes to the crypto space. He's a great guy. So I would certainly recommend if you need somebody, if you need some assistance with your crypto taxes, he would be a great person to reach out to. Thank you. I appreciate that. No problem. And now this is where you would compliment me back. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'll say you're all right. Uh, You know, for for a super Western New Yorker. uh... (laughs) I appreciate it. I appreciate it. All right. Well, anyway, everybody, thank you for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for more episodes about cryptocurrency taxation and blockchain technology. And also stay tuned every Friday where we're releasing our new podcast, The Cryptocurrency Informer, where we just talk about some of the news events that are going on in the crypto space. We discuss those briefly to fill people in. All right, everybody, have a great day and stay safe out there. Thank you again, Sal, for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about this stuff. Of course. All right. Thank you very much. The Bitcoin Texas podcast was created by Colin Mackey and Salvatore Vesio and edited and produced by Isabel Chaparro and Salvatore Vesio.